Today's edition of The Literary Life is taken from a conversation I had with Joe McCorkle for a Books and Books virtual event in celebration of her new novel, Hieroglyphics. Published by Algonquin Books, Hieroglyphics is Jill at her very best. Reading Hieroglyphics reminded me of this review that appeared in the New York Times. A good novel can perform the same perception-bending trick as a lockdown, slowing time, throwing light on shadowed corners, reminding us of the interdependencies among us that we once took for granted. Vibrant, engaging, McCorkle, a generous, humane writer, knows that facing death allows us, as this terrible pandemic has, to focus on what is essential, how to take care of our vulnerable, and to appreciate the connections that sustain us. Welcome to this edition of The Literary Life, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jill as much as I did having it. Hi, Jill. Hi. Great to be here. (laughs) I know. You're in North Carolina, right? Yes. And, you know, normally when we do this, and I think we've been doing this almost for 40 years now, you usually come and physically do this in Miami. I know. And I I can't thank you enough for doing this tonight with us as well. Well, my pleasure. I, I, I would have loved to have been there in person for sure. Well, you know, uh, um, my my um, my relationship, as I said, goes back 40 years. I can remember almost like it was yesterday when you and I met one another. I think it was at a booksellers convention, a Southern booksellers convention. And you had just published July 4th and The Cheerleader, which they brought out at the very same time, which is very unusual at that mm-hmm. time. And also, the other thing that was unusual, they were printed in these very cool small editions. Right. And if any of you out there are book collectors or are interested in the design of books, I urge you to find those hardcover books. They are just gorgeous. And you were there under the auspices of Louis Rubin, if I remember, who had started mm-hmm. Algonquin Press. Yes. In fact, we didn't even have a booth in the main hall. He set up a, a card table outside of the main the main event and basically told me to stand beside it, you know, and point to my book. So um, it, was in the, it was in the lobby, I remember. In fact. Yes. <laughs> so tell me the importance of Louis Rubin to you and Algonquin, what that has meant to you as a writer. And over all these years, you've stayed with Algonquin as a I have I have stayed. Um, Boy, Lewis really changed my life. He he was my teacher in college and just continued to read um, what I was writing after I had graduated. And and he was the one, you know, when I had no idea what I was going to do when I graduated, if I graduated, you know, and he's the one who said, well, you're going to go to a writing program. And I'm like, yeah. So anyway, he he pointed the way and then he, you know, had the brainstorm for this small house, Algonquin. And, and it literally, I was on the second list. So um, it, the, when I met you, the office was in a shed in his backyard in Chapel Hill. Well, if you think about it too, in those days, Southern voices were not heard very, very loudly. 
they weren't well published and that sort of thing. And you're right, you know, there's no reason to put a label on anyone's work, but there were these incredible writers living in the South at the time who were just underpublished for one reason or another. Who were some of the influences that you had at the time? Well, Lee Smith was also a teacher of mine um, and Max Steele. And um, so I, I was very lucky with them. And then, of course, I met Josephine Humphreys um, very early and Richard Bausch and um, Lewis Norton. I mean, it it's a pretty small world, you know, once you start meeting the various it writers. It was wonderful to see that world develop. And as a bookseller, to all of a sudden hear these voices you know, that you hadn't heard from before. And even though Miami's in the South, it's yeah. really not the South. So right. we were really able to experience these various things. And now you see a lot of younger writers who are now standing on your shoulders and standing on Lee Smith's shoulders and mm -hmm. everybody else's shoulders. And it must be very gratifying for you. It it really is. It is. I've, I've, I've taught for a long time now. In fact, a wonderful writer is in the audience, Lydia Martin, who was um, who I worked with at Bennington. And Lydia is a Miami writer. So it's yeah. really great that yes. yeah, Lydia is remarkable. And it's so are we so happy that she had the experience to to uh, to take your class. Your new book, Hieroglyphics, <laughs> it's a marvelous it's a marvelous story. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about it. It's really a story told through so many different voices and it's the voices that carry you along. Um, and the other thing you do in hieroglyphics, which for me was so interesting is not only do you experiment with different voices, but you experiment with each voice expressing themselves in a different kind of writing in a different form of writing. Uh, you have letters, you have little bits, you have, you know, first person, then you don't have first person. Can you talk to me a little bit about hieroglyphics, what it's really about, and what caused you to 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 write it in the form that you did? Yes, um, it was a novel in a thousand pieces for a long time because I I knew I wanted to write a book about um, memory, and and I also had had been very interested in these two real life events that had happened. Um, a train wreck in my native county in North Carolina in 1943, uh, which I heard about growing up. Uh, it was one of those before and after moments that changed so many lives. And then I lived for 20 years in the Boston area. And as soon as I got there, I realized people referred to the Coconut Grove fire in a very similar way. It had touched so many lives in the area. And so originally I was, I was curious about exploring, um, you know, the time period of those events in the early forties and it, I just couldn't get it to fly. And, and yet I had um, the character Lil's voice kind of in, in my mind. And, and so ultimately it, it became about the children of, 
people who were lost in these events. So, so it's the next generation. And so my idea for Lil and Frank grew out of that. Um, they're in the, in the novel, an elderly couple who have retired from New England to North Carolina. Um, but they both were shaped as children by these early losses of a parent in these events that, that 700 miles apart, but took place um, about a year apart and overlapped geographically in significant ways because a lot of the people on the train were heading to the Boston area in New England. Well, and <clears throat> for those who haven't read it, that's just a very broad little sort of clip about what the novel is really about because the thing about this novel which struck me is just how rich it is and and how it takes you through the course of these various lives and it the, the reason why i read fiction often is to have that cathartic experience of um kind of living other people's lives and learning sort of who they are because the one thing that you write about a lot in this is you write about what's hidden, what we, you know, the, the, there's a sense of longing to, so, and you, you're sort of revealing what is hidden in these people's lives. That if you see them on the surface, it's one thing. But once you get deeper into them, you understand that we all hide things in one way or another. Right. And, and, and there's so much about our parents will never know um ways that our children will never see us um so you know i was i was thinking about that a lot and and just about um well all the things that surround us that have meaning in our lives or or the way that we have this kind of shorthand language with people we're really close to where you know one word um can stand for a whole episode or story and everybody laughs and you don't even have to tell the story anymore. And yet if, if the story's not told or there's not a keeper of these, um, so, so much disappears. Um, well, so interesting to me is that you, that, you know, Lil was one of my favorite characters, I think in this book, the relationship between Lil and Frank is, is so profound and the way Lil, the way you tell Lil's stories is Lil is kind of the hoarder of memory in a sense. And she's trying to, she's trying to explain to her children, leaving them notes and writing them little, you know, little, uh, little essays about, mem about things that happened in their lives that they will then discover later on about mm -hmm. the two of them. Uh, talk about why you chose that. Where did, where did that come from? Um, I wanted I I chose first person because I I do think that letters uh, words on a page have the power to sort of reconjure a, a time or a memory, and so um, for her to be going through or or writing in the present tense, um, I felt I felt like I was able to capture her voice at different stages of, of life, which I, which I think was the most challenging part of her, you know, to, to sort of have 
this young frazzled mother over here and then someone looking back on it all. Yeah, someone who's much older looking back. And we we know we kind of get a sense of the the time frame and the movement because you date the different um you know the different entries. So we have a sense of the time, but the way time moves you know, we don't think of time literally in a linear way all the time. We're thinking of it through memory more than anything else. And and you 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 bring up a phrase in the book that I remember called time sick, sort of like time sickness in some way. Would you explain what that is? Yeah, in fact, that's that's in part of uh, what I had put aside to to read. Um, you know, just the way you feel homesick. And um, and for me, I think a lot of times it's it's time sick. It's, um, you know, I, I was surprised after I had lived in Boston for 20 years. I had sort of always thought I would eventually be back in North Carolina. Um, and I was so surprised at how homesick I felt for that place. And so much of it is um, but you know, I loved it and love so much about it. But the home of my children, you know, so suddenly this place also houses all the memories of sort of every stage of their growing up. And, um, and so for me, that is, that's the kind of time, time sick, you know, that, that even, even through difficult times, we, we sometimes think about, and, and it's like, what happened to that sweater? You know, I love that sweater. <laughs> or, or, you know, you remember what book you were reading. Um, we we remember all kinds of little parts of life. Um, and that's that, those are the little parts, I think, that make it unique, rich. No, and I, I think part of the success of this book is that you are able to capture, at least for me, kind of the way people experience the world. I mean, you don't experience the world in this very well orderly way. And and the in the book you have snippets and people are kind of all over the place. But there is an overarching storyline and the storyline is that Lil and Frank are leaving New England to come down they're they're migrating back to North Carolina to be near one of their children, right? Mm-hmm. And when they're there, it's where Frank lived. And Frank, you have this charming opening scene where Frank Frank is going to visit the house that he grew up in, right? In order to sort of, which trigger is the triggering mechanism for all these other memories as well. Right. Yeah, his, he, he, he was forced into this place in the aftermath of the train wreck. So um, right. and that, that brings the other two characters, the single mother, Shelly, and her six-year-old son, Harvey. Um, they're both kind of struggling. And so for the longest time, I had no idea. I kept thinking, am I writing two different novels? <laughs> because what do they have in common? Um but then as soon as I realized, you know, that that Harvey is basically growing, growing up right on top of where Frank grew up, you know, so they're occupying the same geography and that sort of worked. Well, and I don't know. I mean, you must have channeled maybe children you knew, but the the, 
the veracity with which you experience. And I have two boys who are twins, and you nailed Harvey so well. I mean, you Thank really you. got this young boy. I mean, with his kind of weird preoccupations and all of that sort of thing. So how hard was it to do a young boy like Harvey? Well, I I also have a, a son, uh, now all grown up. But, um, you know, I did take notes when my children were growing up. So, so afraid that I would forget. And I'm sure many things got away. Um, but, but also, you know, I... I think that um, I have often uh, thought that the world can kind of be split between those who outgrew a certain kind of um, elementary school humor and those who did not. And I clearly did not. Um, no, you didn't. So, so I mean, was... some of the things you have, some of the things you have in there, you have to read this book just to, you know, the kind of collections that Harvey has. I won't go into what they are, yeah. but yeah. they're kind of unusual. Yeah. Well, no, I, you know, my, I, th- there's some little things, you know, that I've never forgot um, that, that found their way in there. I mean, my son once for some reason coated a whole lamp in Vaseline, you know, and I had no idea why. And the whole time, you know, sort of rubbing his hands through his hair. So he looked like those little ducklings after the Valdez spill for about for about three months. <laughs> but, so, yeah, boys will be boys, right? Yeah. But 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 that that is that is the beauty of this this novel. I mean, it rings so true on so many levels. You know to read a novel, particularly for me, I finished it a few days ago, and to read it, you know, during this kind of pandemic and being kind of locked down and kind of the richness of people's lives, which we kind of forget a little bit about. I mean, there's so much death around us and so much insecurity around us that the whole notion of memory and that, you know, that that we are having to remember the whole, you know, you look at the news and they start talking about people who've died and who they are and, you know, lives well lived or lives simply lived. We forget the kind of graininess of our existences. And, And just being in that novel enveloped me in a way that brought me closer to a kind of humanity. I, I I know I'm going on and on. I'm probably waxing too long, but I just want you to know the effect that it had on me was was very very profound during this period. Thank you. I I think that what first attracted me to those um, the the train wreck and the coconut grove uh, was in both cases reading about those events. It came down to these cataloged lists of little ways that humans were identified to their loved ones. And sometimes, you know, it it was as simple as, um, well, not as simple, it was complicated, but, you know, a dry cleaning tag or a particular brand of shirt or a cuff link or, you know, some kind of token in a pocket. And, um, and it was just that, you know, these these little the the kind of thing you get up and you put on the shirt and you button it and and you don't think about all these little objects um, in the daily 
daily life and and then you get in a situation like this and you and and you appreciate so many things i mean i was thinking the other day what i wouldn't give to be like you know really irritated by a big crowd of people waiting to see a really great movie <laughs> yes. Isn't it, or being even being on a subway somewhere being jostled oh, around yeah. Yeah. yeah, a subway sounds pretty great. Or, or you know, you watch a movie and you see all these crowded city streets, and and you just and it 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 kind of. I was watching something recently, and it hit me the same way it always does when I see the twin towers, you know, in the backdrop of a movie. Um, yeah. The the other thing that this did because of uh, because of the relationship of Frank and Lil and. And the fact that they are older in this and they're basically retired and 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 they're facing the end of their lives really uh and they're and they're thinking backward um you know getting older myself and you know sitting and thinking and understanding that there is a kind of door at the end of the you know there's a wall at the end of the road and it sort of spurs memory in all of us and then you start thinking and there's a kind of haunting that happens. You become haunted by memory in one way or another. And there's a huge amount of haunting in your novel. Will you talk a little bit about that too? Um, yeah, because I think, you know, Lil has a line, you know, we're all haunted by something. It's something we did or did not do. I mean, I think sometimes in life we're, we're just as haunted by that letter you meant to write. And now the person's not there. Um, uh, the, you know, wishing you had stood up for somebody or said the right thing, you know. Um, and 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 so early on, I thought, oh, you know, I'm, I am interested in all these things that did not get said, did not get done, um, which which certainly doesn't sound like the plot of a novel. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I was it, a little, a little is, worried yeah. about a, a little worried about that, but um, but I think that we are haunted in such a way that that those times in life when we've missed the mark or not done something we wish we had done, we play it over and over. And you know, it's like I always tell my students. You know, sometimes something doesn't have to actually happen on the page. Sometimes it's enough for a character to have imagined. You know, sometimes it's even more powerful to know what they wish they had done and did not. So, and, and you also flirt with you also flirt with the ghostly elements of it. You know, I could tell that you obviously enjoy ghost stories, or you must enjoy ghost stories. I do. There's something ghostly about some of the incidents in the book. Um, Definitely. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, maybe the the woo woo factor. I mean, um, right. Harvey Harvey is really thinking, you know, and and he's just um, completely obsessed with ghosts and and real ghost stories. But I think with Lil, it's more um, those kinds of um, kind of the spiritual connection she she feels with this mother who's been gone all these years and things that remind her um, and, and it grows out of language. You know, I have Lil and Frank have this secret word 
that they've decided, you know, based on the Houdinis, it's like whoever goes first is supposed to come back, you know. Right. Um, right. And and I actually got that idea um, from, you know, I, I think I was in high school and my dad worked at the, the post office and he came home one night and he was just clearly moved. And um, it's because this person he had never seen, uh, you know, in this small town comes up to the window and and looked at my dad and said, is everything copacetic? And my dad said he had never heard anyone use that word except his dad. And and um, and the man just, you know, bought his stamps, turned around and left. He never saw him again. And he yeah, it just um, one of those those little crisscross places in life where, you know, you suddenly feel you've glimpsed someone or connected. Well, you know, those of us, those out there watching who are from South Florida know that we have our own mythologies here dealing with ghosts. There are, you know, I was, I was looking the other day in our, in our, um, in our Floridiana section and there's book after book about different haunted, you know, haunted houses that the haunted houses of Miami, you know, that sort of thing. And it's, it's really interesting how much that is a part of so many people's lives, that idea of, you know, of under uh, thinking that there's something beyond and trying to get in touch with that in some way. And, yeah. and Harvey's fascinations are really interesting along those lines. Yes. As, as I mean, as well. I think I've got those books. Uh, next time I'm there, I'll have to get one. Oh, really? I'll send you some. I, I love to buy those local, you know, because they are so steeped in um, a specific place. So. Yeah, they are indeed. But, um, would you mind reading a little something? No, uh, I will read a little of, of Lil, and I'll I'll start. Oh, good. Where I, I love from. Lil, and this is the book, and Joe will be reading a little bit from it. We all are haunted by something, something we did or didn't do, and the passing years either add to the weight or diminish it. Mine have diminished, perhaps because I've spent time thinking about it all. It might sound silly, but I see these bits and pieces as my contribution to evolution, the unearthing and dusting of the prints and markers that led me here. Some seem to bulldoze right through life and up to their headstones, but I want to take my time. I want to find the right words. I imagine my recipient to be you two or perhaps your children, and I hope this is so rather than some stranger who comes in and hoists old boxes into a dumpster or rakes away the remainders of my life like the sad debris in the aftermath of a flood or fire. I'll never get over the sight of what we left behind at our home of over 50 years to move down here, a mountain of cast-off things, old towels and linens, papers and books and shoes and pots, side tables and lamps, hoses and hose, packets of seeds I meant to plant, and a rubber squeak toy that had been safely hidden away in the back of my closet by one of the dogs long dead, and so much more, 
things not needed, things long forgotten, cans of cream of whatever soup and V8 juice, why? And peas that had sat there forgotten for years and things that never should have been there in the first place, like tuna helper or those things in my closet, like that geometric print mini dress I bought in the 60s, hoping to look like Petula Clark or Judy Karn a perky pixie kind of dress that I never had the nerve to wear and instead looked at it there at the back of the closet for years, along with a wiglet and a long frosted fall and some jackets with shoulders resembling a football player or Victorian monarch. We divided it all into goodwill, consignment, recycle, landfill, but there were also the things I couldn't let go of, letters, reminders, souvenirs, and I'm taking my time, relieved when I find something that might have gotten lost in that mountain of debris, like one of your drawings from first grade or the stub from a movie I'd forgotten I even saw or a note from my father. When the moving van pulled away that afternoon and we got in the car and turned southward, the space within seemed so empty, vacant. Our suitcases and silver chest in the trunk an overnight bag and thermos of coffee on the back seat. And I had that terrible feeling that I had forgotten something because I was thinking of all the times the car was filled with you two, your belongings, your music and voices, the dogs, while going to school or on vacation or just to the grocery store where I bought all those things that I then put on the shelf there in our dimly lit pantry on the red gingham contact paper, I spent one snowy afternoon 40 years ago cutting and sticking in place all those things that I put there and then forgot about. In short, I am homesick and I am time sick. I would be lying not to say that. It's possible to feel content and resolved and still be homesick. I miss all that no longer is which is why I paste and piece all these scraps together. Sometimes I hold a ticket or photo, a piece of paper, while willing myself back to where I first held it. I know that might sound silly, but it's what I do. I want to hear your young voices, the dog scratching to come in. I want to call my father on the telephone, finger in that rotary dial, one number at a time, TW33642, let me take this playbill and arrive at the theater or this receipt and find myself there in the produce aisle of Star Market. Then after the show, after I check out, after I sit and let the car warm up, I drive those familiar streets home and find everything just as I left it, the kitchen door creaking behind me. Stop there. Oh, that is beautiful. Jill. Thank you. You know, that is just lovely. I, you know, a, a gentle rain has just started on my roof here in Miami. It's right here. You, yeah, <laughs> I, I can hear you read all night. Maybe uh, we'll just do away with the audience and you'll just read to me all night. That is really, really beautifully done. Thank you. Thank and you. I can remember my phone number was Jefferson one one nine six two. That was my number. J E one one nine six two. Yeah. I mean, I have so many of those numbers in my head, but I can't, I mean, you know, now we plug yeah. it into the phone and just, but um, I can't even remember numbers anymore. I know. I, I can't. Just, 
pushing someone's name. But, right. you know, you. I think we need to explain to the audience as well that she is actually writing letters to her own kids in those at that yes. time, right? Yes. Um, and we learn something about her two kids through her letters that she's yes. writing as well, a boy and a girl um, in terms of that. The the other the other overarching thing that I I I came away with is the whole notion that we keep secrets. We just do. People keep secrets. Talk about the importance of secrets in the book hieroglyphics. Um, I think that yeah, you know, with with Lil and and Frank in their marriage, um, there there are secrets that that she's having to come to terms with. Um, I think Lil is the kind of person she's going to grab a flashlight and, and search every closet and shine the light on it, you know, and Frank is very compartmentalized and, and for him, both good memories of his boyhood uh, alongside darker memories. He, he sort of found, he finds both painful, you know, to look back. So he he has bottled up a lot and stored it and and he's taught archaeology courses all these years. So, you know, there's a lot of overlap um, you know, in that in that he has he searched all these other time periods and interests, but his own life he has shelved. And then um the young mother Shelley has made her her whole past a secret in many ways even even from herself you know she's she's not allowing well, she her doesn't to... she doesn't allow her son to really know where his father is or what right. went on there right so there's a lot um that's not told i mean lil's mother basically went out one night not saying she was going to the coconut grove she said she was going to teach a dance class and that's all they know, you know. So, so there's a lot about, um, yeah, secrets and and what gets withheld and how it affects other people. Right. It's what it's the dig. It's the archaeological dig of our lives, right? That's you know, there's archaeology. He doesn't really, you know, Frank very sort of doesn't even realize that the hieroglyphics he's looking for is right in front of him in many right. ways. You know, he's he's the archaeologist, yet he's overlooking things left and right, more or Definitely. less. Definitely. Um, really, I just, uh, you know, I'm going to read a little something to you. This, and, and it's the way I sort of felt about it. And it's by Rebecca Mackay, who writes about hieroglyphics. And she says, Jill McCorkle has long been one of our wryest, warmest, wisest storytellers. In hieroglyphics, she takes us through decades, through loss, through redemption, and lands in revelation and grace. As always with Jill McCorkle, the story feels so effortless and true that we might well miss a high wire act she's performing. But make no mistake, she's up there without a net. She never misses a step, and it's spectacular. I couldn't agree with her more. This is a remarkable book, and everybody out there should be punching that green button on their screen to make sure that they get a copy of this book. And in fact, Jill, we will be able to provide signed copies as well. So we hope that if you order it, 
uh, we'll make sure to send you a signed copy too. Jill McCorkle, I can't thank you enough for it. And I also personally want to thank you for your unending support of independent bookstores and all the work that we do. Um, um, not just books and books, but all over, <laughs> all over everywhere. Yeah. You're, you're beloved by all of us. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for, you know, understanding the synergy of the writer and the bookseller and the reader and where we all fit in this crazy world of ours. Well, thank you, Mitchell. I mean, that means that means the world coming to you, because as as I said, green as grass, that first that first event for me and I met you and I met the wonderful now lost to us, Nancy Olson. And, um, you know, I came away. Well, I mean, it it set the pace because uh, I I was a fan then and I continue to be. And um, yeah, we here in the pandemic, you order from your indies. You know, yes, please it, do. Very Please do it. Everybody out there can order a copy of Hieroglyphics. We thank all of you for coming tonight and partaking of this event. And Jill, you know, be safe. You, you know, I, I, I hope all goes well. And, you know, um, I look forward to the next one.